My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. to you, all my Eumenidites. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, returning to you with another episode of Euripides Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Welcome back. Glad to be heard by all of you again. <laughs> Let's give some recognition to where new listeners are popping up. Hello to my listeners in Hungary. Nice to have you with us. And a very big hello to my followers in France. The invitation is open as always. If anyone in Hungary or France would like to have Euripides or Eumenides as a live in-person event, please feel free to reach out. I'd love to visit. Now, speaking of my international audience, you're in good company for today's episode. Recently, I was contacted by musical theater artist Olivia Ruggiero from Sydney, Australia. Liv is currently touring all over the Sydney area and other locations in Australia with a Broadway review show. And let me tell you... Man, Liv can sing. If you'd like to see if you can catch her on tour, I'll link Liv's website in the episode notes. You can find all of her touring information there. But anyway, Liv is a big fan of Euripides Humanities, and recent listeners may have heard the ads for the production of the Little Women musical that Liv recently directed and produced. In any case, Liv reached out to me to help promote her production and to possibly be a guest on the show. Unfortunately, I couldn't get this episode ready before their production went up, but from what I understand, it was a smashing success with some great reviews. But as an additional treat to this episode, Liv brought on two of her student performers from that production, Jeremy Russell, who played John Brooke, and Ruby Strohmeyer, who played Amy March. I got to have a really good conversation with them about their show and the production that went up and acting in general. You'll hear that in just a moment. But since Their Little Women was the musical version, and since these students were just getting their toes wet into the world of theater, and since they had such a qualified tutor to guide them, I found a great topic for us to discuss on this episode. After recording my last episode, my guest Patrick Kossel discussed with me the idea of making a major studio album from one of the biggest bands of the world into a musical. And it got me thinking about jukebox musicals, and one in particular I'd always been curious about, mainly because I'm a pretty big fan of the musician in question. I told Liv, Jim, and Ruby that we'd be discussing an obscure entry into the canon of jukebox musicals, and they voraciously studied and googled, but they never came up with it. So, I'll quit teasing you as well. Here we go, today's episode, Lazarus, the David Bowie Musical. 
it is so great to meet you all. And hey, welcome to being the first guest to Euripides Humanities from Australia. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. I've just been sitting here getting to know uh, Olivia Ruggiero, the director and producer and all kinds, wearing all sorts of hats for uh, this production of Little Women that by the time this episode airs, it will already have come and gone. So I don't know, Liv, how, how are you feeling about these kids? Uh, yeah, look, we're, we're about to enter what I like to lovingly refer to as hell week, um, which is production week. (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, look, they're doing such an amazing job. We had our final dress rehearsal on Friday. Yes. So that was two days ago for us. And, um, yeah, it went really well. We're super excited. We bump in tomorrow. We've got you know, lighting plots and set and, you know, all of that sort of thing in the next three to four days. So All that fun <laughs> stuff that you add to the final production that everybody's like, I was not prepared for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not prepared for it. So they're definitely not. You know what I mean? Like... I just got done with the production of Noises Off and the number of plates of sardines that have to come on. I mean, uh, we were all joking. Like, if we would have forgotten something, all we would have had to say is sardines and the audience would have had no idea what's going on. So uh, (laughs) let that be a lesson to you, kids. You have two professionals telling you. (laughs) If something goes wrong, just throw in a line. That's what anybody does. No, I'm just kidding. We actually had to do that in dress rehearsal, didn't we? (laughs) One One of our costume changes didn't happen in time. And I was like, improv, do it. Just do it. Come out in a skateboarder costume. It's fine. Uh, That's awesome. Well, Liv, that's that's great. Um, I'm going to come back to you, but I want to talk to your students who are in this production. I'm going to start with you, Jeremy. Uh, this is Jeremy Russell, who is playing uh, Dr. John. Is that right? Mr. John, not not Dr. Mr. <laughs> John. Oh, okay. Don't make more than he is. <laughs> uh, you can tell I'm very, very familiar with Little Women at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit about your process. How how has this been getting into this? Uh, it's been really fun, actually. So I've only been in a few productions. So ah. I went from the lead to kind of more background and more supporting the leads. It's been a slightly different, um, different approach to last year. Oh, okay. What did you do last year? Uh, we did Shrek and I, I, I played Shrek. So... And you were Shrek. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it was kind of like the main attention to like, mm-hmm. okay, here's this more side character that still plays a really important part obviously there's not that many people in the production there's only around 10 10 of us yes 10 so it's rather small compared to shrek where there was a whole ensemble yeah that's a big show that's an awfully good show yeah about 54 people in shrek okay yeah 54 to 10 that's a difference (laughs) yeah (laughs) so tell me what do you find is the difference like taking on such a lead role where your character is kind of the thing that everything is happening too but now as kind of a supporting character do you find yourself like finding your uh acting methods or your motivations kind of different to just like help support the world coming down on those main characters <laughs> yeah definitely yeah yeah so I'm lost for words <laughs> that's all right that's all right Jeremy's like, i actually so- did nothing different i still think i'm the lead <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a great thing to do, though. I mean, that's a great thing to do is like when you go into a part, yeah, it might not be the lead, but that doesn't mean it's any less important to the show. Yeah, obviously, like we, we all play like it's it's a team effort. So, yeah, my part links into their parts. And I'm obviously playing an opposing love interest to one of the main sisters. The story doesn't work without my character. Right. And if you're not playing it to the best it can be played, then the story doesn't work. Right. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So let me ask you this then, Jeremy, what is 
your favorite part of acting? I guess just working with other like-minded people. Obviously, like the cast, I've done a couple productions with them before. Like I know them quite well. And the more we act, the more we get to know each other more. It's it's lovely to have a community that is the same as you almost. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's also fun to see those different facets of your friends' personalities and find out like, yeah. oh, wow, okay, so they're this type of actor and, and I don't see that in myself. So it's fun to watch them kind of explore that realm. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, cool, Jeremy. Good to meet you. And now I'm going to turn it over to Ruby Strohmeyer, who is playing Amy March, one of the sisters. How are you, Ruby? I'm good, thank you. Good. What's your experience in acting so far, Ruby? Um, I've actually never done a production before. Oh my gosh. Um, ever. So <laughs> when I auditioned for Little Women, they had never seen me act before, I don't think. We took a risk. I, I, I do do, I do dance, but so I show a bit of emotion that way, but like, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So doing this was, it's very different. I've never, as I said, I've never done anything like it before, but honestly, it's been like a really amazing experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I know the cast really well, but getting to act with them and like see them in a different light has been really 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 great yeah yeah so so what type of dance are you most familiar with all of them i'd say all of my, them okay my, so. fa my favorite is tap yeah a tap okay okay so going from more of a visual expressive style to something where you actually have to do not only body language and yeah. you know facial expression but now you're also d relying on your voice what have you found has been the most challenging and I, oh my god this is a musical too so yeah. now you're singing uh so so yeah what what have you found is something that is uh, a challenge that uh, you've faced i do think that when i started off as i hadn't like acted or sung in front of other people i was very nervous to actually like do it to the best of my ability because oh, i mean i was afraid of judgment and ah, yep mm -hmm. yeah i like i'd think oh what if i get the notes wrong what if what if this doesn't look right and everyone goes what the what is she doing like <laughs> what's going on <laughs> yeah 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 that's that, that that's that fun actor's nightmare where you know you you de deliver this wonderful song or a great monologue and then the house is all crickets right yeah. <laughs> you know or there's just the one person it's it's your grandparent out there clapping <laughs> <Yeah. right>? okay <laughs> but i'm gonna guess that it sounds as though the faith has been well met the risk was worth taking because here you are you're <laughs> Now speaking to a podcast that has an international yes. audience <laughs> for your very first production. That's, that's yeah. really cool. So I'm assuming you're planning on coming out for more then. Ah, uh, yes, I hope so. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> well, well, Liv, I'll, I'll just say if this is an example of what the rest of your cast has got, I think you got a, a pretty outstanding show there and I wish you all the best. Uh, look, they're, they're pretty great. I like them. Uh, <laughs> thank you <laughs> um yeah no we've had a lot of fun it's a beautiful show i think that this cast is almost perfect for it um and the oh, amount yeah. of growth that i've seen in the rehearsal room and and through the period of rehearsal has just been incredible so i feel very blessed as a director and a producer and i feel very confident going into this week that come opening night on friday i'm going to be able to sit in that audience and just enjoy the show yeah so i'm i'm looking forward oh. to that 
that is yeah. the the profound hope of any director. Like, honestly, that's something when I get to direct, I think like, you know what I'm doing? I'm making theater that I want to see and I want to share it with the community that is, is around me. So that hopefully on opening night, I'm not sitting there going, oh, she didn't wear the right hat for this. Oh, I'm like, I don't care about that. It's just a fun show. It's fine. So no pressure, kids, but I'm sure you'll do great. Please come on in the right costume. Yes. <laughs> that's all I have to say about <laughs> I jinxed it. Now, before we go further, uh, Olivia, I've got to ask you, please tell me about puppets. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. Did you guys see puppets? Yeah. Yeah, these bo- yeah they both have twice. seen pu- Twice. Jeremy's like, I went twice. They know way too much about my love life, basically, in short. <laughs> Um, it was actually really mortifying. The last time I did puppets, which was last year, and the next mm-hmm. time I do it will be in Scotland, um, a whole, I think about 20 of my seniors turned up and they were just sitting in the audience and all I could see was this row of students and I'm like, oh, <laughs> and I swear a lot in that show. Like, it's, it's not good. And I'm sitting there every time I dropped like an F bomb going, oh my gosh. And then, and then to top it all off, like, so basically, puppets, I turned all my ex boyfriends into puppets. For those of you listening at home, that's what the concept of the show is. Mm-hmm. I took really well-known sort of icon puppets, so like Muppets and things like that, um, and I place the personalities of my boyfriends inside of them and we have conversations and we sing together. It's like a whole thing and we reenact what basically led me to believe that I have no hope when it comes to dating. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so there are six puppets and I'm sitting there every time I introduce a new boyfriend watching my students going, you should not know this about me. but that all aside this show has taken you across the globe literally yeah well it it happened in covid i wrote this show over a three-day period during covid originally it was like 32 pages of just manic monologue (laughs) it was me i'd just been i'd just been dumped again and i was like rage so i just raged for 32 pages and then i ended up calling one of my friends and i was like i think i wrote a show like a play. And she was like, why is it a play? And I was like, because that's what it turned out to be. And she's like, babe, you can sing. Maybe you should put some songs in it. So then it became a cabaret. And then my mum really offhandedly sort of made a comment about the guy who had just dumped me saying, he kind of reminds me of Grover. And I was like, oh my God. Grover? <laughs> well, I think it was the smile. It was the Grover smile. Like, and then I, then I had this thought, I was like, what if all of them are puppets? Like, what if all of my ex-boyfriends are puppets? So that's how the show basically developed. And then it just escalated. We ended up doing Sydney, Melbourne, and then we came back to Sydney. And then we landed at Edinburgh Fringe Festival and we're going back this year. So it's just like, it's a whole thing. I just can't believe how it's taken off. And then I won one, two Broadway World Awards, which seems like the most confusing thing to me. (laughs) It was this beautiful serendipitous sort of moment where I wrote a show during COVID and then it, it happened. It happened. It happened. And and that's so funny. Like I've I've talked to producers on this show. I've met playwrights. I've listened to a lot of interviews. And you'll find that so many people who have written something have just that thing that's like been locked in a drawer for a while. And they bring it out. They're like, I don't know. This might be something. And that's the thing. That's mm. the thing that explodes. And you're like, wow, you never know what's going to happen. So, hey, awesome, 
on the puppets. And uh, thanks, uh, men of Sydney. Uh, don't worry, there aren't any red flags that I'm detecting, and it would seem that Liv is still single. So, uh, <laughs> I do actually. It's so awkward though. Like you go on a first date now, and they're like, "Oh, what do uh, you do?" And I'm like, "I'm a. I write shows and I perform them. What's your show about?" That is a real great icebreaker. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you stuff this up, I will turn you into a puppet. But... Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, awesome. Great to meet all of you. But I bring you on here for a reason, because we mm-hmm. have some fantastic theater history to talk about. I usually like to start these with a question. And I kind of gave you the question so you could think about it a little bit. And obviously, that may or may not have been a mistake. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you, feel free to just uh, throw in your input here. What is a jukebox musical that you feel is underrated or underappreciated? Dear Lord. (laughs) I I like some jukebox musicals, but I'm not like a huge, huge fan of a lot of them. Yeah, the genre can get overplayed. Yeah, the one that I really, I do enjoy, I actually have never seen it physically on stage, but I've listened to the soundtrack, I've heard a bit about it, is Beautiful, the Carol King Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that that was kind of a fun vehicle for a lot of different, you know, celebrities to come and play the title role yeah, like and that was the draw. Movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's probably one of my favorites. I know you Ruby, you have a favorite jukebox music. I love Mamma Mia. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually seeing it next week. Um Oh, in, okay. Oh, I don't know the place, but it's in Sydney. Sydney, Sydney, yeah. Somewhere in Sydney, okay. So there's a production going up next week in Sydney. Yeah, that one, uh, I understand. Uh, That's going to be done locally here pretty soon. And, I mean, uh, huge show. Huge show, brilliant idea. Let's take these songs that are for a niche audience that can be kind of generally appreciated. Mm. We'll write a script around them. Uh, Jeremy, you got one on mine? Oh, yes. Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge! Yes! Yes. Yeah. I was lucky enough to go behind the scenes and kind of get an overview of what goes in behind stage. So without the actors, like lighting, costuming, audio, like all, all of the different things, like props, like the flies and everything. And it was really informative. Yeah. And that's such a technically huge show. Yeah. Yeah. It shows how much goes in behind the show. And it, it's crazy that you don't actually think about all of these things. It's such a big show. It's, um, but I mean, what do you expect? There's a whole song about spectacle. It literally is. And when I saw it, I actually thought to myself, this show is going to run for 50 years. Like right. they sing the line, it'll run for yep. 50 years. It's going to like yep. Moulin Rouge is a spectacle, but also beyond that, like as a theater lover and as like a theater nerd, you appreciate it as well. It's for everyone. Yes. What I think it's what makes it so awesome. So uh, yeah, I think it's got a lot of longevity. That one is it. What we're talking about, Aaron? Tell us now. Yes, we're done. That's all. We're done today. Yeah, we talked <laughs> about it, and that's it. No, no. Unfortunately, that's not what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to start this way. I'll say uh, we can agree that a jukebox musical, in the standard definition, you take the songs of a particular group or a particular singular musician mm-hmm. and and you craft a story around those. Can we agree that's jukebox musical? Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to start with a couple quotes from the musician in question whose jukebox musical we'll be speaking about today. First quote. What I am used to doing is being very stubborn, obscure, confrontational, and enjoying every second of it. Eyes are widening, jaws are dropping. All right. Okay, here's the second quote. This 21st century 
has been very disappointing so far. Ooh. Oh. Uh, <laughs> if all three of you were terriers, your ears would have perked up right there. <laughs> that was great. Okay. All right. So any guesses there of who we, who we might be talking about? No, we're stumped. No, we're stumped. No, we're totally all right. stumped. All right. All right. Okay. Well, I, I apologize for this, but I have to start with kind of a bummer, but it is going to be the, okay, burst the bubble. And here we go. On January 10th, 2016, the world lost a true gift to humanity. Musician David Bowie died after an 18 month long battle with colon cancer and a music career spanning five decades. <laughs> David Bowie? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about David Bowie today. Oh, okay. None of us saw that coming. That was not even on the table. Yes. Okay, good. Here we go. On January 8th, 2016, (laughs) David Bowie celebrated his 69th birthday and released what would be his 25th and final studio album, Black Star, which has been the source of much speculation given the fact that it was released so close to his death. I mean, do you guys remember that? I remember that. Do you remember David Bowie dying? I don't remember him dying. Did you know I, he was dead? Did no. she just like that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I just threw it. No, no, no. Just, just, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry. Aaron, what have you done? You've just ruined the kids. They thought David Bowie was alive. We also need to talk about the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus then. <laughs> But, okay, so Bowie had kept his illness relatively secret, and only of his family and a few close associates knew. And actually, Bowie had been staying out of the public eye for what turned out to be a number of reasons. But most notably, he stopped making public appearances after abruptly canceling several tour dates in 2004 due to having a minor heart attack that required surgery while on tour. All of a sudden, he's like, oh, my arm feels a little funny. Turned out he had this blocked blood vessel. But it also turns out that Bowie was not impressed with the concept of fame at the time. Here's a quote. Fame is like a luxuriant mental hospital. Wow. Which is, which is odd because he was probably one of the most famous artists of the 20th and 21st mm, century. Yes. And I think think I get into that later, but if I don't, I'm going to bring it up. But yes, the fame situation is fascinating about Bowie, especially in the latter years of his life. So basically, over the years of superstardom and worldwide recognizability, Bowie felt that fame had gotten him some fringe benefits. Like if you wanted to get a table at a restaurant when they said it's impossible, you go, uh, it's for David Bowie and they clear a spot. Uh, If you want to get concert tickets to see your good friends who are playing a show in the town you live in backstage, you can do that because you're David Bowie. However, he especially felt that he was fairly disgusted by our society's demands placed on the famous in order to remain famous. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're all just silently agreeing with that. We're like, yeah. (laughs) Shame on us. So after 2004's tour was abruptly ended, Bowie rarely attended public events. He did a few movie roles. He didn't really make any music again from 2004 until 2013. And I mean, if you go back and look at the catalog, like he was making an album every other year, if not every year. I mean, it was so much content that was put out. All right. Anyway, 
2013, when he started making music again, saw the unorthodox production of a new concept album called The Next Day. Bowie was working in ways no one had remembered him working before. He would assemble his bands from prior musicians he'd worked with and send them all individually the music he had written for their specific instruments. However, before any of them would play or record together, Bowie would hand them non-disclosure agreements that sounded akin to what new actors in the Marvel Cinematic Universe might have to sign. There was this very secretive air to what he was doing. Yeah. You can understand why. Like, if people found out, my gosh. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's just nothing but speculation. And if he just wants to wake up and go to a place and record some music and explore himself musically and not have to meet any deadlines and not have to face that fame monster. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And in addition, most of the musicians in the band were surprised by Bowie's insistence to stop working each day at 6 p.m. He just wanted to be home in time for dinner. Obviously. Precisely, <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. In the past, he would work and work and work until he was satisfied for the day. Now, he was hard-pressed to finish by a certain time every night. And like you were saying, this is most likely because it had become apparent just how much he enjoyed spending time at home with his family, his wife, supermodel Iman, and their daughter Lexi, who had been born in 2000. So she was just a child in 2013, and Bowie treasured his time being a father and a husband at this point in his life. Considering what you said about the fact that how he felt about fame, it's it's sort of not surprising, really. Like, mm-hmm. if you have that bit of information, it makes a lot of sense. Right. But it was also this relationship that inspired many of the works on the album the next day. As many have said about his works, they are truly autobiographical, although they are often conveyed to us through theatrical metaphor. In any case, his works on the next day came from some truly dark inspirations, and Bowie seemed quite enthusiastic to inject himself into these new characters in each of his songs. As he does on every one of his albums, he's telling perspectives of like how he's seeing the world, but it's through different characters' eyes. Now, the quote earlier about the 21st century was mainly about having to be a parent in a time where children are being sent to school when school shootings are an epidemic, particularly in the U.S. It's hard to protect your children or explain to them what's going on when it's probably a result of what society has become. And therefore, are we not all guilty? I'm like, I don't want to put my hand up and say I'm guilty, but. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you're also like, I didn't do anything. And I think that's kind of where he was feeling. He's got this person who's incredibly dear to him. So now, now it seems important. Despite the gravity of the next day, Bowie was described as being very excited by these new inspirations. The next day was also an album that on one hand seemed to be about an aging man looking back on his life and thinking fondly and about how we use these memories to go forward into life. It would seem that Bowie had found a new spark, an inspiration to express parts of himself that he had been wanting to express for a long time. So, apparently, one of these bucket list items that Bowie had been wanting to do since the 1970s was to create a work of musical theater. Whoa. (laughs) So we're looking at a 40-year dream. We're like, oh, I have to do that. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm down for that. His dream project was a musical adaptation 
of a classic novel. And I'll give you a hint. I want you to guess. I want to see if you can guess it. Is it Little Women? Just nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. David Bowie, Little Women. I, <laughs> I can't picture that. Nope. I can't even make fun of it. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I reckon Joe singing Under Pressure at work really well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to have a Freddie Mercury in that too. So I yeah, hope yeah, that's going to work fine. out. She'll sing it with Laurie. It'll be great. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. That. Perfect. Look, okay. I fixed so it. it's a classic novel it might be assigned in school and it's about kind of a dystopian future any oh, thoughts like every school book ever no no yeah. <laughs> is it is it 1984 the george orwell it is 1984 oh. i just read that you just yeah? read that we're studying that in class like currently <laughs> oh my god okay okay so this is going to be fun i might give you an idea for a paper Yes, I'm going to give you for- I, I have a paper due on Thursday. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, this is perfect. This is perfect. Okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna give you some real dirt here and you are going to blow your teacher's mind, okay? Thank you, because I have no idea what I was going to do for it. <laughs> oh, and, and after we're done, you have a download list and it's going to be wonderful. Okay, so according to Bowie, he really didn't even know where to start writing a musical, but he was insistent. Like he said in the quote that I started, he likes to be stubborn and he likes to do things the way he wants to do them. So he had instructed his people to go get him the rights to adapt the novel into a musical. At that time, George Orwell's widow, Sonia, was still alive and had control over his creative body of work. This was the early 1970s, while Bowie was still somewhat in his androgynous alien persona, Ziggy Stardust, and at the beginning of his glam rock era. Sonia Orwell took one look at Bowie's offer and refused it outright, believing it to be in very poor taste based on who would be doing it. Oh, that's savage. I know. <laughs> Wait, so you don't want your book to reach a new audience by one of the most popular singers in the yeah. world? Like, mm. Okay, fine. I guess, yeah. So check this out and write this down, Jim. <laughs> the result of this rejection was Bowie's 1974 album, Diamond Dogs. Oh my gosh, that's the soundtrack to 1984. You're writing a paper about this. <laughs> More or less, yeah. The Diamond Dogs tour has often been considered the closest thing to musical theater that Bowie has ever done, as the songs on the album each had their own story about a vignette in a dystopian future similar to 1984, invented by Bowie and inspired by 1984. Wow. I mean, and it traveled all over the place. The concert for the Diamond Dogs tour had Bowie and several performers more or less acting out the story in each of the songs on stage. But as I mentioned before, the album was something of a series of vignettes, so it was kind of loosely connected, but the only commonality was that they took place in the same imagined timeline, okay? If you look up the track listing, Diamond Dogs is where we get the songs 1984, Big Brother, and the Bowie classic Rebel Rebel. Wow. Yeah, that's so, it's like, I would love to get a video of that, of a concert of, from that tour. Do you know what I mean? Like that. There is a documentary that I, uh, I studied to watch this. It's on Max. It's called David Bowie, The Last Five Years. And they have, I think, never before seen footage from that tour. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, that'd be so cool. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So since then, Bowie has appeared as an actor in many films and some theater, most notably in the title role of The Elephant Man on Broadway in 1980. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, here's another fun fact. This is just something I found. Great trivia. Guess who else starred in that production? It it was another one of those star vehicles where they're like, we're going to plop a star into this lead role. It was a great acting challenge, and it was the thing to see new actors come into that role and play it on Broadway. So David Bowie played it in 1980. To wind out the run in 1981, guess who played him? Mark Hamill. Oh my gosh, Star Wars <laughs> Mark Hamill. <Yeah. laughs> you guys know Luke Skywalker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah. There you just gotta go. You gotta, the, you gotta call him. The Joker. Yeah, you should have yeah. said Luke. They should have said Luke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, he only did it for about six weeks, but he did it. But, okay, since the 1970s, yeah, Bowie's dream of musical theater stayed locked away until the right moment. After the release of The Next Day in 2013, British theater and film producer Robert Fox got a call from his friend David Bowie, who was insistent to get a musical based on his works to the stage. Mm -hmm. Fox recalls that while he was generally quite polite, Bowie seemed more urgent than normal about this proposal. Robert Fox suggested to Bowie to have some other writer come up with a storyline based on a basic catalog of works. And after reviewing many authors that Fox had suggested, Bowie finally approved of Irish playwright Enda Walsh, E-N-D-A, Enda Walsh. He's a prolific figure in the contemporary Irish theater scene with a list of impressive credits that anyone could aspire to. And those of us in the musical theater world might recognize Walsh as the book writer for the popular musical once based on the movie of the same name yeah i was gonna say the name is so familiar yep (laughs) and every time i hear that i just hear that one tune over and over and god it's so oh it's so beautiful so beautiful beautiful. so fox was drawn to walsh's work particularly for this project as fox cited walsh as being particularly adept at writing characters who felt trapped Here's uh, here's a quote from the director of this musical. His name is Ivo von Hove. If you haven't heard that name, huge in the world of theater directing. Quote, Bowie really discovered the main character in himself, and he connected to that character totally. And that's not so strange when you listen to his music. There's a lot of music about people that are feeling not at home, displaced on earth. I mean, uh, Jeremy Ruby, how familiar are you two with with David Bowie and, and his music? I, I I can't lie and say that I've I've I know much about him and his songs, but I've definitely heard them and I know a basic overview of kind of who he was and kind of what what he did. Right? Okay. Yeah. I think I think we all could list off like what five or ten. Ruby, what do you think? I'm pretty much the same as Jeremy. Okay. I'm I'm not too familiar, but I'm I mean I'm definitely familiar with who he is and his yeah okay so he's one of those names that's like it's a it's a john lennon it's an elvis presley yeah, it's I think he's you know generations Absolutely. yeah okay because he was my parents generation like so i grew up sort of listening to it secondary do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like they were listening to it and therefore i was listening to it right right view. so so we just know this is somebody who's been there right like yeah. and, and and wasn't necessarily of our generation so that's I, I I'm I'm glad I brought that up because I'm like, yeah, we might feel a little displaced from this as well. This quote about feeling kind of displaced on Earth is really applicable to this project, as Bowie wanted to continue telling the story that started in the 1976 film The Man Who Fell to Earth. 
Bowie played the title character in the movie, an immortal alien who is more or less trapped on Earth and looks completely human. While in disguise on Earth, the alien uses the name Thomas Newton, and Newton had come to Earth to find a way to recreate moisture to deliver to his dying planet. During his years on the planet, he used his advanced alien technology to become an inventor, and his inventions acquired him a lot of money. Eventually, he had created a vessel that would take enough water from Earth to his home planet. But on the day of the voyage, he is taken into custody as he has been spied on for many years, and they discover his secret. So while in imprisonment, Newton becomes addicted to alcohol as they keep feeding it to him to keep him, like, sedated. And he finds out the woman he has been quite fond of, Mary Lou, does not actually love him and leaves him to die in prison. Oh my gosh. Well, that's the happy ending we were all craving. Yeah, I mean, 70s movies, I mean, you know, this is kind of in the vein of A Clockwork Orange, where you're like, oh, there's nothing that feels good here. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Oh my goodness. I want to watch it, and then I don't. I'm like, oh. right? (laughs) I don't know if I can put myself through that. Yeah, exactly. Near the end of the story, Newton finds out his prison is not actually locked, and he just wanders out stuck on a planet he'll never be able to leave oh, again Ooh. very dark yeah not the yeah. happy ending i was craving yeah um, so i mean you can see it more as like a metaphorical kind of thing you know i mean there are these people who are trying to do good and the world will just not let them i mean yeah. i think we can probably think of many examples but i would say there are many of us i i hesitate to say it but at the same time like you know we find a lot of people like that in the theater who don't feel at home anywhere else. I mean, Jeremy, you were saying it earlier. It's fun to feel part of a community of like-minded people. Whereas, you know, you might not be super good friends with footballers or something like that, you know? I mean, uh, one of us is friends with footballers. Like, I want to yeah, okay. with the wrong group of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Precisely. But but I mean, that's my point. It's like this is this is a place where we find our home. And I think Bowie found a home in his music and everything, but there was just something discordant between him. You know, it was oil and water. It just mm. they didn't he, he and the society that were there just didn't seem to work out together. Okay. We always had that otherworldly sort of thing. Yeah. Like I remember growing up and seeing pictures of David Bowie and thinking spaceman. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well and that might have been, you know, something that uh, like inspired what <laughs> we know. think of what we think of as, you know, aliens from another planet, the skinny little white uh humanoid figures with big heads and and black eyes. That might have <laughs> been yeah, inspired yeah. by Bowie. Yeah, he always was like but he was always sort of wearing funky things and his music was always a bit sort of alternate and even though he was super popular. Yeah. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. he always had that otherworldly thing about him. Right. But earlier on, I said, you know, his work has often been considered autobiographical. So Mm -hmm. basically, you know, as weird and alternative and otherworldly, it seems that is him expressing to the world how he feels about being in the world. Like, ooh, and how many people could identify with that? So in the early days of creating a musical, Walsh was given about 60 songs by Bowie to turn into a single storyline about the further adventures of alien Thomas Newton. And Walsh gave Bowie a story and a track listing that he was mostly amenable to. 
The story more or less follows Newton decades since the incidents of the man who fell to earth in which he's still addicted to alcohol. He's pining for the lost love of Mary Lou and wondering what hope can be found in the new world he is forced to call home. The set is basically Newton's apartment, which he never leaves, surrounded by the air quotes luxuries that his wealth can afford but more or less devoid of love. So there's a lot of pondering about what is the meaning of love and does it actually have something to do in life? And somewhere in this, he is accompanied through his existential hallucinations by an adolescent girl who is apparently only visible to Newton. <laughs> oh my gosh, again, very dystopian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very and and yeah. I mean, I've seen some images of the set and how it was done basically it's a floor and when they need to represent a living room they bring out furniture to represent a living room and it's not a living room they take it off if it's a bedroom they bring in a bedroom stuff but a lot of it is also portrayed through projections so yeah. as this newton is having these hallucinations in his apartment like the the stage just kind of becomes the inside of his mind through projection work which is so fascinating to me through the entire play Themes of acceptance of the past and reluctance to face the future are always present. So besides telling Fox to find him a playwright who could continue telling this story and eventually wholeheartedly agreeing to work with Walsh, Bowie also said that he knew the play would be titled Lazarus. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's all I have on that. <laughs> yep. Yes. <laughs> It occurs to me that some of you Eumenidites out there may have actually seen Lazarus before. If so, I would love to hear from you. I've only been able to read reviews, see photos, and see small sections of the play here and there. But if you have had a more personal experience with the play, please drop me a line. As always, you can write to me at trident at tridenttheater.com. You can go to tridenttheater.com and use the contact us form or drop me a DM at the Euripides Humanities or Trident Theater Instagram accounts. But I can't wait for you to hear the rest of this story. So here's the conclusion of Lazarus, the David Bowie musical. While he had spent the years leading up to the next day in virtual seclusion, and despite telling the creative team that he would hardly be there once the play was ready for rehearsal, he actually was very present during the entire process. In fact, he even personally auditioned in his home fan favorite actor from the series Dexter, Michael C. Hall, who would eventually be cast in the lead role of Thomas Newton. Wow. So he really knew what he wanted. Absolutely, he did. That's what he was doing for like those almost 10 years. You know, yeah. 2004 <laughs> to 2013. He was sitting in his living room going, this is my plan. <laughs> Literally composing music for this. He was like, hold yep, on. Yeah, absolutely. Which that that blows my mind too. I think it was within um, like a year. Uh, we also lost Prince. Yes. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was, that was a shocking year. I remember. Yes. There were like 10 amazing celebrity deaths and we're all like, you gotta be kidding me. How can we go on in this world? <laughs> but I think it was when Prince died, they opened up his vault and he had literally thousands of songs that he had recorded to completion and just kept locked away. Again, so that's gotta be planned. <laughs> <laughs> 
and COVID hadn't even happened yet. Like, oh, right? gosh, we're all so right. slack. Oh, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> we had a whole lockdown. Like, what have we done? <laughs> now, uh, during workshopping and rehearsals, Bowie was quite pleased with the progress, often offering his thoughts on how the show could be constructed. But mainly, he just seemed pleased that his dream of creating a piece of musical theater based on his work was finally coming to fruition. And here's another quote from uh, Lazarus director, Eva von Hove. When we did the workshop in New York in April of 2014, afterward, he said, this is my dream. I don't think he ever used the word musical. He said music theater. And it feels more like that for me also. It feels like music theater, end quote. It just feels like, well, Bowie is so larger than life. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So if, you know, to, to call something a dream rather than a musical or what it is, it feels very Bowie. It, yeah it, it it feels like his music and probably his personality and even the quotes you read at the start he would take things to the absolute extreme mm-hmm. like he was that sort of artist and that creative where he didn't see the world as a small thing he was everything was big and had to be big yeah well and and the thing is i think to that point he was such an artist that he wanted you to grapple with the work a little bit. Mm. He wanted you to play it over and over again and think about it and let it sit and fester instead of saying something like, this is a love song. I love this person and this person doesn't love me. Therefore, I'm sad. You know, it wasn't that obvious. I mean, if you you brought it up under pressure, mm. if you go back and look at under pressure, those lyrics are literally all about all of the people walking the streets of New York, being gay, being lesbian, being trans, and knowing that they are facing a world that right then was against them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, it's always bigger. He's just, yeah. it's so layered. And I've, I've never seen Lazarus because I don't think it's ever come to Australia. No, no, it hasn't. We've had it. No. And I've never been in a place where it's being played. I don't even know if the rights are available. I didn't look into that either. To my knowledge, there have only been two public performances. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So during workshopping one day, the crew came to a stopping point and Bowie concluded that a new song needed to be added near the beginning. The song he came back with was Lazarus, the title of the play. After hearing it on stage, Bowie remarked that he was so pleased with how the song had turned out that he was going to put it on his next album, which he was working on at the same time. Because multitasking. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's it's funny. So many people who I had read about researching this said that it was weird. It took him five studio albums to get recognition. And the only way he really got recognition was by becoming another character. So being just this kind of handsome, young, skinny guy with some good bebop and songs, he had to become something different. In those first five years of the major part of his career, he worked harder than he ever had, only second to this, the last five years of his life, where he churned out two major albums and a musical. Wow. <laughs> that's huge. That's, that's hard work. Yeah. Like, yeah. never have I ever multitasked, right, guys? Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a very, like, it's an artist's thing, though. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you guys can understand this, too, at, at their level of 16. It's obviously different when you're my age and you're doing it to a different 
level but like you guys have school and you're doing a musical and Rubes, you'd be preparing for like tap and jazz exams yeah. surely mm-hmm. and ballet are you doing ballet exams? i don't know <laughs> yeah doing a ballet exams <laughs> and like you know jem's doing his hsc and performing Oof. in a musical so like we all we all do multitask particularly as artists because i think if you love something enough you put the energy into it yeah and it's worth it for you and that's yeah. probably the point that he got to i mean he he knew he was like probably a ticking time bomb Ooh. i think a lot of people do like we hear these stories so often in the last five to ten years of someone's life they start to really ramp things up and you go why are you doing this and it's like in their heads they know the clock is ticking yeah subconsciously i've got to do this now they can see the countdown yep mm, yeah oh wow we're getting exactly to what you're just saying they live Very much in the vein of the next day, Bowie's next album, Black Star, seemed to be another opportunity for the artist to expand his reach as well as challenge himself further as an artist. Of course, it's always been my opinion that Bowie was in general, like, he was always like three to five years ahead of anyone else in the way he looked at music and the way it was progressing. And if you want to challenge me on that, I I submit to you, look at his work from the 1990s. And all of the artists inspired by his work to create new trends of the 1990s outside of music pop markets. By the end of the 90s, most artists who were like, no, I'm trying to make something different and new, were all following exactly what Bowie did. I think I I, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Like, what Even going back to what you said before about the fact that he slogged for five years at the start of his career and then had to become a different character to basically make it. How many artists have done that? Like Madonna, Lady Gaga? Yep. Like it's, I think David Bowie was probably the original. He was like, hold on, this is not working as me. Let me put on like a different shell. And the artist inside and the human inside still the same. Like it's still churning out that material. Yep. But essentially his exterior was what he changed to revolutionize. And let's be real, he did revolutionize a lot of music. Oh, yeah. And then artists like Madonna and Gaga, they followed in his footsteps. They were like, this is not working as me. I'm going to put on a different shell and celebrities do it all the time. Yeah. And similar to that, I, I think I mentioned it on some recent episodes and, and, and Gemma Ruby uh, being where you are. And if your interest in acting is to continue, I will say this and, and live may or may not agree with me, but one thing that a lot of actors have a challenge in is finding their character and figuring out who their character is. And the thing that I always tell new and young and beginning actors is, well, there is a bit of comfort here in just about every single character that you play. Every single character that you play has one common factor. It's you. You are in every single character that you play. Therefore, it's not as though you have to become somebody else. You are just you with a different set of circumstances. And that's really it. You know, the more comfortable you can be yourself on stage then you can be like okay so this character has these circumstances oh they might speak with this accent but it's still me so i'm kind of interested uh have you found that as you've been going through this uh yeah yeah i i do see a bit of that in amy when i play her i do see bits of my myself coming through as well mm-hmm. which, yeah yeah i she look she's Amy's not a liked character, probably. No, and yeah, and that's kind of a fun thing to know about a character too. Yeah. <laughs> I do play those, you know, bratty parts and sometimes I think like, oh, this is... But look, there's there's definitely parts of Amy when I'm playing her and I can see like similarities and like I feel for her. 
And I yeah. Okay. Okay. Jeremy, are, are you finding the same about the characters you played? I mean, now you're Shrek and now this uh, <laughs> young lover. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Mr. John Brook, he, he's a likable guy. Like, he, he's quite charming. There's nothing that he's really doing that's going to upset the audience or really put a negative feel on him. So I feel like he is a relatable character. He is betraying a part of me. Yeah, yeah. The likable yeah. part of Jeremy. <laughs> I, I would like to say I'm likable. Yeah, I mean, others likeable. may <laughs> <laughs> you know, others like may Jeremy. not agree. He's like the likable guy. You know, he's the one in the cast that everyone's like, ah, oh, Jim. Jim's a good guy. I I just met you, and I find you quite enjoyable. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so funny because, like Ruby, you're a bit the same. Like Amy is not likable. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. When I said I find some similarities in Amy, I don't think that I'm a um <laughs> total brat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's not what not I was gonna that, say. Not that, not that. Just, just thought I should clarify that. Clarify that one. <laughs> hey, no, I, yeah. I've played villains in the past too, and you know there are those days where you're like, oh my god, am I capable of being this person? Uh, and I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, in another universe, yeah, probably you are. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, getting back to Bowie and getting back to all this stuff, we're, we just talked about uh, the album Black Star being made at the same time. Whereas The Next Day was an album about an artist using memories of the past to challenge how we move forward, Black Star seemed to be the next step in the evolution. Black Star seemed to be an album about an artist realizing, like you were saying, Liv, that the end may be near, and either what it means to leave a legacy, or if legacy was indeed left, and granting the self permission to accept the next phase in life, which may be death and beyond. Wow. <laughs> Ruby, you look like you had something to say there. I think she was just in shock. She was like, "Whoa!" Yeah, Whoa. I thought we were doing a fun podcast. <laughs> From a musical standpoint, the album Black Star is significant because Bowie sought to have jazz-infused rock as the basis for the album, and worked with some very influential New York-based jazz musicians and ensembles to help him conceptualize the sound. And this is a, another bucket list item, it would seem, getting jazz in his music. From a lyrical standpoint, and knowing that Black Star was released only two days before his death, many would speculate that Bowie was giving a parting gift to his millions of adoring fans worldwide. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly seemed like that to those of us who knew a little bit more about him and were like, oh my God, he gave this to us. The cancer was really only made known to the world upon his death, but Bowie did keep some in the loop. For the last few years of his life, each of the directors, producers, or writers of these projects were informed by Bowie that he was, quote, sick with cancer. But they were only informed of it after they had agreed to be a part of it and after some significant work had already gone into the project. So it's like... You know, maybe in the middle of rehearsals here for Little Women, Liv comes out and drops a truth bomb on you like that. It's not gonna happen, guys. Chill. No, it's not. It's not <laughs> happening. We did. We didn't come here to have an intervention. This is it. This is how I'm letting you all know. <laughs> and I'm only telling two of you. Yeah, yeah. And you can't tell anyone else. Here, so so cool. Yeah, yeah. Make them sign some sort of no non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> Poor children. How we traumatize them. <laughs> but it can only be speculated as to why Bowie chose to do this. 
My guess is that he didn't want the work to be a series of pity projects hastily put together for a dying icon. I mean, he knew what he was. Yeah, absolutely. He didn't want that to be the definition of his work. He he didn't want people thinking, oh, we're doing this because Bowie has cancer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For example, it's no secret that Lazarus director Ivo von Hove took the job because he wanted to work with one of his favorite musicians, someone who had inspired him to make the art that he did. So if he were just to find out that it would be one of Bowie's last projects, would he have given his best or would he just be doing it as the dying wish of his favorite musician? Yeah, exactly. It changes the tone. Mm -hmm. But it's also interesting to know that Bowie knew about his cancer diagnosis before beginning either of these last two projects. Yeah, I think that goes back to what I was saying. He knew. He literally did know. He was like, okay, this is it. My time's limited. Got to go. Yeah. Got to do this now. Read-throughs for Lazarus began in summer of 2014, and he had the diagnosis by then and was undergoing chemotherapy treatments. And despite the diagnosis, it's hard just to tell how much Bowie understood the gravity of his illness during the production of these two projects. Simply focusing on Blackstar, the album, alone, there is a lot of fodder to fuel conspiracy theories to how much he knew and didn't know. On one hand, take the title of the album. We've already established that Bowie was reflecting on the past as a means of looking forward. One of his most iconic characters, we've already kind of hit on it a little bit, perhaps the one that launched the career we're all familiar with was Major Tom, an astronaut lost in the cosmos. And I mean, it's so hard, isn't it, to resist sitting here and singing it all together? (laughs) (laughs) The term black star also refers to a black hole from which nothing, not even light, can escape the gravitational pull. So it could be a clever metaphor about death and its inevitability while seeing through the lens of one of his favorite memories in character. Some also speculate that the term black star is a term used by medical professionals to describe cancerous lesions, but it's usually when describing breast cancer lesions and Bowie had colon cancer. So, I don't know, seems a little far-fetched to me, but... I don't know, I feel like he he would have done all of the research and probably put it all together in his brain. Do you know what I mean? He would have been like, what's the most convoluted metaphor I can think of for an album? <laughs> It could also be a nod to Bowie's friend and one of my favorite hip-hop artists, Yasin Bey, formerly known as Mos Def, who was part of a powerful hip-hop duo named Blackstar. Uh, I think it's probably all of the above. <laughs> I like, think it is. It's not A, B, C. It's actually D. It's all of the above. It's all of them. <laughs> like, what we've been discussing, it seems like he was a bit of an intellectual. Oh, my God. Like, as well as a creative. Like, very intelligent. Yes. And probably would have sat there and done the research and, like I said, just gone... You know what's the what's the thing that ties this all together? Yeah, he, he yeah. planned it. He, yeah. He'd known for years what that last album would be called. Do you know he what might I mean? have. He <laughs> might. Have. He was sitting there going, "I've been sitting on this for twenty years." Like, mm. <laughs> well, I couldn't write 1984, so I'm going to write this. And ooh, Diamond Dogs as well. Never mind. Okay, we'll put this project to the side. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you can also speculate on the lyrics and music video for the song Lazarus. The song begins with these lyrics: "Look up here." I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen. I've got drama, can't be stolen. Everybody knows me now. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Premeditated? Okay. So autobiographical. Uh Absolutely. The music video, a performance art piece, also shows Bowie as a man in a hospital room alone. And he seems to be fearful, but at times 
also joyous. And I don't know if you're interested. I'd kind of be interested in some hot takes. Have you seen the music video, Liv? No. No? I know you... I've heard the song before. I know I have. Okay. Um, could I sing it? No. Would uh... you uh, Would you be interested in seeing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it would be interesting to get these youngsters a uh, hot take on this. So I'm going to pause recording and we're going to go ahead and watch uh, the Lazarus video. If I can get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, so my guests just watched the uh, Lazarus music video, and uh, I'm seeing some interesting facial expressions here. <laughs> Thoughts? That is a lot to process. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what that was. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, Ruby, you have just been introduced to David Bowie music videos. They are all quite strange. Mm -hmm. He liked a lot of them to be performance art pieces, but, for example, what did you see? <laughs> A blindfold with interesting things as eyes. Yeah. Buttons as eyes and flailing around in a bed. Flailing around in a bed, flailing around in a stocking suit. Mm. <laughs> Any other thoughts, Jim? How'd you like it? Very interesting. In in a hospital yeah. um, uh -huh. with an interesting figure underneath his yeah, hospital bed yeah. kind of yeah. reaching out towards him. I, I could not guess what, what that means. Yeah, I don't understand that. Okay, so I think you're kind of in the space as a lot of people who heard this music and were kind of wondering what the hell it meant. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, Liv, you had an interesting reaction to that, I see. Yeah, um, I was just, I was thinking, like, hindsight's a beautiful thing. So <laughs> we obviously know that David Bowie was coming to the end of his life when he wrote that song and when it was released, but back when it was released people didn't know that so they would have been sitting there totally perplexed not really knowing what was going on there would have been probably a lot of conspiracy theories i imagine that like mm. the internet trolls would have been like on the notice boards and like you know in the chat rooms and it would have been like what is going on with david bowie i um, mean he also doesn't look he doesn't look well in that video ah okay this is kind of interesting we're going to give you a couple little factoids here i, I might mention it here in just a little bit but in some of the footage that I saw of rehearsals for the Lazarus musical, he's got a baseball cap on, dark sunglasses, dark clothing, and I can't tell if he still has hair or not because he was undergoing chemotherapy at that time. But in the Lazarus music video, this is when his hair had grown back. The classic Bowie hair. Yeah. Stands up on end. Yeah, exactly. Now here's another little factoid for you that is interesting based on the comments you just had there, Liv. The director of the Lazarus music video swears that Bowie did not know that his treatments were failing until the week after the filming for the video had concluded. Yeah, I'd believe that. He had he had some gusto in that video. Yeah. He was we'd hesitate to call it dancing. Um <laughs> there, were, there was movement. <laughs> But that is to say, though, that does put a little bit of the ding in the theory that he had planned for Black Star to be released so close to his death uh, with something of a hope that the cancer treatments work. It's it's hard to make that assumption that, OK, this isn't going to work. I'm going to make this music video as like the last thing that I'm going to give out to the world, knowing that I'll be dying really, really soon. So I don't know. I, I mean, it, it's a cause for speculation. It's a cause for debate. But I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, the timing on that. I will say this as well. Bowie loved to intersperse very cryptic lyrics and song titles in his works. 
Many of Bowie's bandmates through the years described him as having a great sense of humor, uh, and he's very playful on and off stage, as though to tease what he knew would be a populace desperate to find hidden meanings in his final album. The last track on Blackstar is titled, I Can't Give Everything Away. Very ominous. <laughs> also playful. I just think of that because, you know, everybody's like, well, listen to this lyric. You know what that could mean. And when did he write that? And where did he write that? And when did he record it? And who did he tell it to? And at the end of it, he's going, I can't tell you everything. <laughs> you make this mean to you what it means to you. It's kind of lovely. Yeah. One of the best lines I ever heard Bowie speak in an interview as though directly to the camera, therefore to anyone listening, was this. That's part of my entertainment to you. Lying to you. <laughs> so he was a comedian. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um... Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. And he also knew that there's that mystique. There's that fame that people are going to be hanging on your every word. So I would suggest that if Bowie were giving any parting gift as an understanding of the final act of a genius, I would suggest considering Bowie's concession on how his iconic song Heroes would be used in the Lazarus musical. So like I said before, when Enda Walsh was coming up with all the songs and everything, he told Bowie, this is how I want to use Heroes. And Bowie went, I don't know about that. For Heroes, what Walsh proposed was a stripped down, almost acoustic version of the song to be played at the conclusion of the play. It's, it was almost as though you took the song Heroes and made it a ballad. As such, it would be used by the alien Thomas Newton as a song to realize that death is inevitable, no matter how far down the road it may be. Thus, the wallowing in the present should be unnecessary, and that life could be appreciated until it was over. And even then, the next stage of life is just another chapter, and who knows what that will bring. Ooh. Oh, I challenge you after you've listened to this, go find the Lazarus musical. I think you can get it on Apple Music and and listen to that version of Heroes because it's just tear jerking. Yeah. The final image seen in the play is that of Thomas Newton lying on the floor, but as seen from above, like an aerial photograph around his outline, a projection of a hand drawn rocket ship is seen shooting to the stars an homage to the acceptance of death and rebirth in the iconic images of Bowie's time as a spaceman. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say that's uh, that's iconography for Major Tom. And that's something. Yeah. Bowie's final public appearance was for the opening of Lazarus off-Broadway on December 7th, 2015. After the premiere, he sat with the director backstage who noted that Bowie looked considerably weaker from his illness, but even then, he thanked the director for helping him realize a dream and then suggested that they better get to work on the sequel. Oh, bless. <laughs> and as a reminder, Bowie died on January 10th, 2016, two days after his birthday on January 8th, when Blackstar was released to the world. Tony Visconti, a music producer who worked on several projects with Bowie from Space Oddity through Blackstar, had this to say on the day of Bowie's passing. It's a longer quote, but I love it. He always did what he wanted to do, and he wanted to do it his way, and he wanted to do it the best way. His death was no different from his life, a work of art. He made Blackstar for us, his parting gift. I knew for a year this was the way it would be. I wasn't, however, prepared for it. He was an extraordinary man, full of love and life, 
He will always be with us. For now, it is appropriate to cry. Oh, End quote. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And my friends, that is the story of Lazarus the musical. It's a lot. And I want to say it. When is it going? Australia? <laughs> I'm far out. Well, and and I struggled with this. I struggled with this. Uh, I, I've talked about it before, but Ben Brantley, the famous New York Times critic, uh, oh, did, uh, did a review of this and he loved it. He loved oh, it. Oh, wow. Really? That's but, rare? Yeah. But he fully acknowledged that it was very bizarre, that it might not be for everybody. But the moments that were like specifically Bowie were so unbelievably like euphoric for the audience that you couldn't help but enjoy it. I'll be totally honest, in the few days leading up trying to write this, like I'd sit down and just the whole weight of the whole thing just kept on me. And I was just like, I can't. And I got in such a <laughs> funk. And then I'm like, and then the thing that that reminded me of all of this was the same guy, Tony Visconti, says in the documentary that if you listen to the song Lazarus with all the musical track taken out and you just listen to Bowie's vocal track, you can hear him between the lyrics, like almost hyperventilating a bit. Tony Visconti says... I watched him through the glass on the, in, in the studio on the other side of the glass and the excitement in him to get these words out and express them the way he wanted to express them was exhilarating to him. And I think there's this exhilaration of performance. I mean, there's just something about getting on that stage and making the people feel it's not so much I'm getting a laugh and they're laughing at me. So I feel good about myself. It's no, I feel good that I help them achieve a new stage in their emotional health. Mm. David Bowie. What a legend. Yeah. And his last projects are probably his least known, but my God, what a bunch of work went into that. Yeah. yeah. What do y'all think? <laughs> I want to see this musical. Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and it's done with just a small rock band, so it's easy to put up, but you know, it's like you've got to understand the weight of the characters that are being played and what they mean. And like I said, some of them are only visible to the main character, so it's like I don't really under can she's in the room, can she not see her? And you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> but at the same yeah. time, you're you're going, Whoa, okay, these are some big thoughts that I wasn't I wasn't aware that i needed to think tonight yeah of course well kind of the fun of going to the theater i think yeah and i, I feel like it'd be nice to kind of um have walked in blind to that one. Oh, to yeah say, obviously like you know david bowie but you don't know what this is going to be because i often think that the best theatrical experiences are had that way when you walk in mm -hmm. you don't really know what the music is going to be what the storyline is going to be i think it makes it so much more fascinating and it lets it wash over you in a completely different way so mm. i think it'd be totally fascinating i mean going in with the prior knowledge that we now have yeah would be awesome as mm. well but yeah yeah i had a friend who i think saw it in london but at the same time, she was a huge Bowie fan. And and I don't know if I ever asked her about what did you actually think of it? Because inevitably, I worry that it would either be I absolutely loved it because it was nothing but David Bowie tunes, or I absolutely hated it because they treated the music not the way that I think it should be treated. Oh, it's got to be one or the other. I think it right? would be, be a show you love or you hate. Like there yeah. would be no in between for people. And that's that's why I think it didn't do as hot as it could have. I mean, it sounds like an absolute labor of love, but like a lot of his music, you go, uh, 
yeah, it's not my jam or I love this, you know. But often what's commercially what's commercially successful, you know, I have very big opinions on what is commercially successful. <laughs> I, I, I struggled doing this or the Tori Amos musical. Oh, that would have been completely interesting. <laughs> yep. Because again, like not commercially successful, but. Yeah, yeah. Feeding a specific niche audience. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely is. But these these um these shows that aren't necessarily successful often have cult followings. Yes. You know what I mean? Like yes. and they come back ten or fifteen years later and they are like whopping successes. Like we look at Heathers. Heathers is the prime example of how to flop a musical, get a cult following, and then come back like ten years later and be like one of the most popular musicals of our generation. Yeah. Which is wild. And I think I think the next one to pop like that is Carrie. Oh, absolutely. It's coming back. It's crawling. It absolutely is. There are productions happening all around us of Carrie. And I'm like, Carrie was dead in the water. Nobody liked Carrie. And now everyone's like, let's do Carrie. Let's so do yeah, Carrie. it's so mm-hmm. funny. So it's probably going to happen like that. And it will be like this generation that will discover this Lazarus musical and they'll be like, oh my gosh, this like 1970s pop star who was pretty cool uh, <laughs> yeah it'll be you you younger generation co-opting on a star you don't know anything have about like t-shirts and they'll be like producing theater and they'll be like let's do lazarus and like then all of a sudden there'll be like 20 community theater productions of lazarus within like a 10 kilometer radius <laughs> it'll just be these little flashbangs all over the place and like i don't know people seem to like it well jem ruby any any other thoughts i i don't think i have anything else to add really other than thank you for educating us. Yeah, very, very interesting. <laughs> thank you. I tell you what, friends and listeners, it's going to take me a while to get over this one. Like I said, I had trouble writing it, but I keep reminding myself that it was all about the exhilaration of being alive and being able to perform that kept me from drowning in the doldrums. And really, it's just beautiful music. You can just feel the passion in it. I want to thank my guests, Olivia Ruggiero, Jeremy Russell, and Ruby Strohmeyer for being my guests on this episode. I know your production of Little Women was absolutely fabulous, and I wish you many broken legs in the future. But for now, I'll sign off. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming. Another episode will be in your ears in another two weeks, and I will see you at intermission. Lockdown, lockdown.